Fuentes did it with Terra Nostra, Joyce did it with Finnegan's Wake, and now Cartarescu has done it with Solenoid. Where in reality, that night was the author's rise to fame, in Solenoid, it's his fall from grace. What you'll find within it is a hallucinogenic combination of daily happenings, the author's preoccupations and anxieties, the content of his dreams, and the bizarre carnivalesque outgrowth of his creative frustrations. A book that exerts a gravitational pull on all the text that surrounds it and compress it into a single unit of energy and with it creates something new entirely. This is the greatest surrealist novel ever written. I won't lie to you. I am struggling to think where even to begin with this one. I think most people can look back on their lives and think of at least one, maybe a few pivotal moments to which they regularly return and ruminate on and think to themselves, where would I be if that had gone differently? And this question, rhetorical as it may be, cuts immediately and profoundly to many of the anxieties that I struggle with personally. And so I wanted to open with this as your sort of conceptual launch pad so that you can understand why the book I'm gonna be covering today is so significant to me. As I've said before, Superlatives make for weak criticism, but I am undoubtedly going to slip a few into this episode. Because the book I'm covering today is, to put it as ineloquently as possible, goddamn sublime. And that book in question is Solenoid, by the Romanian master of surrealist introspection, Mircea Cartarescu, who I've already covered on this channel. As a quick note on format, I'd like to remind you that today's episode will be available in audio-only format on your various podcasting platforms, as well as a text transcript, which you can find on Substack. I'll link both of those in the description box below. Now, today's episode is fairly extensive, so I have put an itinerary of topics in the description box. I'd encourage you to use those and navigate between ideas which you find of interest and leave out the ones you don't. If you're not up for watching the whole episode, I wouldn't blame you. While I'm a little reticent to be discussing the same author again so soon on my channel, Solenoid was simply too incredible to leave undiscussed. And so, here we are. start by making sure I offer credit where it's rightfully due. To the person who was instrumental in my discovery of not only Solenoid, but also a wealth of other texts that have been recently translated, or more importantly, untranslated, into English. And that person is Andre, who runs the incredible literary blog, The Untranslated, which I'll link to below. Now, I don't want to come off too cloying in my praise, nor lapse into diluting superlatives, but for my money, this is the most significant literary resource available online, rivaled only by the modern novel and Socrates on the Beach, two other blogs I'll link to below. 
well worth your time. As the name should imply, Andre's blog is devoted to reviewing novels which have yet to receive an English adaptation, and thus have been otherwise unread by us Anglophone monoglots, myself regretfully included. He provides a rare window through the language barrier as he covers books that are written in French, German, Spanish, Russian. For my money, he is the strongest reader in the digital literary community, and I cannot recommend his blog highly enough. Again, there's a link to it below. Absolutely need to check it out if you haven't already. In November of 2017, Andre wrote a stunning review of Solenoid in which he called it the greatest surrealist novel ever written and one of the four great 21st century novels to explore the fourth dimension, rivaled only by Mikhail de Palau's El Troy Accord, Thomas Pynchon's Against the Day, and Alan Moore's Jerusalem. That quote, the greatest surrealist novel ever written, actually found its way onto the cover of the finished book as a blurb. Despite the fact that terms like surreal and fourth dimension are generally enough to gain my interest, any evocation of the name Pinchon is enough to get me running to the nearest bookstore. And in this review, Andre deconstructs, dissects, and reveals, with incredible erudition I might add, the seething, beating heart of this book. And that was before a translation into English was readily available, which makes the undertaking that much more impressive. If you haven't read this piece already, stop what you're doing, stop this video, click the link below and read it. And I assure you, it will compel you to go purchase this novel, if you haven't done so already. Now, I read this review a few years ago with pretty substantial disappointment. I was heartbroken to learn there wasn't an English translation. At the time, it had only been adapted into French and Spanish. Being Canadian, I have a loose command of French, but insufficient to be able to grapple with a book as dense and demanding as this. I considered sending it off to my sister, a fluent French speaker, for an ad hoc translation, but decided to spare her the misery. So I just had to sit for a few years and wait. And then Sean Cotter came to my rescue. Now, those of you who have read Blinding, published back in 2013 by Archipelago Books, should be familiar with the name Sean Cotter, as he translated that incredible text as well. I will admit, I was surprised to see Cotter return to continue translating Carterescu's work, as he said quite publicly in the past how demanding these books are for its translators. Suffice it to say, when I heard he would be back for Solenoid, I knew I had to pick his brain. Through our email correspondence, Cotter was kind enough to give me an overview of how he came to translating this text. Solenoid, like blinding as it happens, was not my idea. I pitch more books than I translate, but I didn't pitch Carterescu. Will Evans, the visionary publisher, came to me. I deflected as long as I could, because I knew how demanding Mircha's works are, but eventually the challenge was just too tempting. I wanted to do it, and I was pretty sure I could. It was the next landmark after Orbitor. While there are other works on the map, not all of the same stature. There's lots more to do though. More fiction, more poetry, including The Fall, essays, diaries, a guide to dragons, etc. Reading this, I then bounced back to Will Evans over a deep vellum and asked how he came to discovering Solenoid. I was pleased to hear that his experience mirrors mine quite closely. I read Blinding and was obsessed. I then heard about Solenoid from our friends who read Spanish, like Javi who owns The Wild Detectives and Andre from The Untranslated, whose review corresponded with a time we could dedicate the resources to signing such a major book. 
So I called Sean and we aligned timings and goals and made the magic happen. Now, those of you who have read Carter Rescue before should be patently aware of his virtuosic ability to blend poetic, literary language with dense, scientific terminology. And personally, as someone whose passion is for the arts but whose career is in the sciences, I generally view these two types of writing as almost diametrically opposed. One would think that a text that seamlessly interweaves these two antithetical types of writing would pose a particular challenge to the translator. But Cotter didn't quite see it that way. Here's how I posed the question to him. Solenoid is exceedingly introspective and abstract, featuring plenty of Baroque biological processes and bodily functions, convoluted meditations of physics and his relationship with physical space, and so on. Were there any unique challenges to adapting Solenoid into English relative to the other texts you've translated for Carter Rescue before? There's a heavier focus here on what I might loosely refer to as geometry, as well as physics in the fourth dimension, which I can imagine comes to add an additional layer of complexity to the language. Is there even a Romanian word for tesseract? To which he replied, Strangely, the more scientific a term is, the more likely the translation will already exist. Scientists coin terms and share them across languages. Medical terms in Romanian and English are both taken from French and eventually Latin. The Romanian word for tesseract is tesseract, because English didn't have that word until Hinton proposed it. For me, the challenge of translation usually comes, and I'm grateful to Susan Bernofsky for putting this into words, in the sequence a sentence dispenses information. Carterescu's sentences are packed full of information, all of which seems important. The motifs of color pattern, the thickness of a ring, a particular sequence of screams, the sounds of a tram, etc. All this information travels in astounding currents of energy, which the demands of English disrupt. This style I knew from Orbitor, so I had practice already and didn't panic as much. Cotter raises an excellent point here, and one that I think rings immediately true to anyone who's trying to acclimatize themselves to Carterescu's style of writing. While I wouldn't be quick to make trite comparisons to pinch on, both authors have predilections towards long, rhythmic, flowing sentences connected by multiple independent clauses and packed to the brim with metaphysical and philosophical preoccupations. The challenge is not on a word-by-word -word basis, but more on a clause-by-clause -clause basis. And the translator has to make sure that all the independent thoughts are delivered clearly and not getting bogged down in the whole noise of the apparatus. When I was discussing Sorokin with Max Lawton, his translator on episode five, he made an interesting analogy with translation to cooking, where if you reduce a stew for too long, you end up getting this thick, gummy mass that gets stuck to the bottom of the pot and all the individual textures are melted away. And I think in a lesser set of hands, this is exactly what could have happened to Orbitor, and even more so Solenoid. But what we have instead is a gorgeous, Byzantine funhouse packed to the brim with trapdoors and trick mirrors and hallways that lead to everywhere and nowhere at once. This is by far the best translation I've read all year, and I am continually in awe of what Sean Cotter does. Incredible work. Golden Lyre, 
pulse your wings till I conclude this song. Hide your horse's head deep under silence. Golden lyre, pulse your wings till I conclude this song. I'm not going to include much in the way of biographical details on Carterescu's life or career because I've already covered that in episode 4 of the show, which you can watch in your own time. Generalities aside, there is an absolutely critical moment in Carterescu's life which I didn't mention in that episode, which I think is crucial to understanding prior to going into Solenoid. That would be the creation and reception of Carterescu's early poem, The Fall. I will add here that in our correspondence, Cotter mentioned that The Fall is a piece of work that he is interested in translating at some point down the track as well, so be on the lookout for that in the future. Now, full disclosure, I haven't read The Fall personally because, as is the case with much of Carterescu's back catalogue, it hasn't been translated. If you happen to be proficient in Spanish, you can read it in his translated collection Poesia Essencial, published by Impedimenta Poetica in 2021. I've tried my very hardest to unearth whatever details I can about this poem, but have, for all intents and purposes, come up dry. If there are any bilingual readers out there who have had a chance to read it, please drop me a line in the comments below. I'd love to hear more about it. All I have to go on at this point are those opening lines which I read at the beginning of this section. What I can tell you is that Carterescu considers this a formative text in his personal artistic development, sort of fulcrum point from which a 50-year prolific literary career grew. His reference to his performance of the poem in Solenoid reads as follows. The fall, the first and only map of my mind, fell the evening of October 24th, 1977 at the Workshop of the Moon, which met at that time in the basement of the Department of Letters. I have never recovered from the trauma. Let's start with what occurred in reality. This literary focus group, the Workshop of the Moon, was a real gathering that Carterescu attended in the late 70s. However, it actually went by the name the Monday Literary Study Circle, presumably because they met on Mondays. His first reading of The Fall did occur on that night, October 24th, 1977, and it was met with universal praise and acclaim, particularly from the very influential literary critic, Professor Nicolae Manolescu. And this event was instrumental in Carterescu's propulsion from a basically unknown beat poet into a massive literary superstar in Romania. So, back to the book at hand. There is a bit of the plot I want to get into here, but I'm going to save the bulk of that for the upcoming sections. If you were to reduce it down to its inciting incident, Solenoid is basically a thought experiment about where Carterescu's life may have gone, had that reading gone another way. And this is exactly what happens in the novel, particularly in the events of Chapter 5. The narrator who inhabits this book, a figure that I've taken to referring to as the anti-Mircha, goes to the Workshop of the Moon, and reads his poem, The Fall, and it's met with universal disdain. And it's a catalytic moment of martyrly humiliation for him. And this compels the narrator to swear off his aspirations as a writer and continue his humble and bleak existence as an elementary school teacher. The coin fell on the wrong side. I drew the short straw. And my career as a writer continued, perhaps, within another possible world, wrapped in glory and splendor, but also in conformism, falseness, self-deception, superbia, disappointment. But here, 
All that was left was an unfulfilled promise. I've poisoned my nights for the seven years since in a masochistic effort to remember the grimaces, the sounds, the movement of air in that basement room that turned into the tomb of my hopes. Where in reality, that night was the author's rise to fame, in Solenoid, it's his fall from grace. And this event appears to me as the first of the many literary influences we see interpolated throughout the text. This idea, the divergence of many possible realities from a single event, immediately drew to mind Borges' immortal short story, The Garden of Forking Paths. That story is readily available in a number of different collections. I personally recommend his collected fictions published by Penguin. For my money, this is an absolutely essential text to have on every bookshelf. And to contextualize that comment, I don't even think Gravity's Rainbow belongs on every bookshelf. This is probably the highest density of enjoyment I've gotten out of any book on my shelf. I guarantee you, something you love directly stems from Borges' influence and what he developed in this collection. Because I can already see this becoming a bit of a shotgun blast of an episode, allow me the first of many digressions. If you haven't read Forking Paths yet, the story, within a series of nested frame narratives, revolves around a professor named Yu Sun, who meets a man named Shoi Pen and discovers his creation of both a novel and a labyrinth. The narrator comes to learn that this novel and this labyrinth are actually one and the same. And what Shoipen created was a story in which every single bifurcation point of choice stems into a different reality altogether. Despite the innumerate possible realities gestated in the Garden of Forking Paths, all of these realities are of equal possibility and relevance to the grand narrative, which would be viewed by uh, what I might call the viewer, the uber-reader. And I mention this story because this is the first of the many metaphysical paradoxes that Solenoid traffics in. It's a story that's rooted in autobiography, but also finds various points in the author's life from which to diverge. The narrative becomes progressively more outlandish and fantastical, until any diegetic grounding we have as readers is lost entirely, and we're forced to surrender to the most horrid, baroque corners of Carterescu's mind. I don't think I'm off base with this comparison either. Consider what he has to say about his writing process in this interview with De Reactor, hosted on, again, The Untranslated. I write by hand, without any plan, without a synopsis. My way of writing is pure and continuous inspiration. On each and every page I have the chance to change everything, to change the meaning and the course of the novel. On each and every page you have to decide your book's trajectory. It's as if there are crossroads everywhere, all demanding a decision. If that isn't a process of forking paths, I don't know what is. Without straying too far afield, let's circle back to that bifurcation point, the failure of his reading of The Fall. This traumatic event lays the emotional foundation upon which the narrator has built his entire worldview. The 600-odd pages that follow are steeped in a milieu of self-flagellation and melancholy. Gorgeous, transcendental melancholy, but melancholy nonetheless. After so many years, I take my revenge on the single person who, bound and helpless, a simple living anatomical specimen made for torture, has fallen into my hands forever. Me. No one but me.
Solenoid presents an interesting challenge with respect to taxonomy and classification. To put it simply and rhetorically, what is it? It's not really a novel in the conventional sense, not a straightforward biography, nor is it a series of loose aphorisms or diaristic ruminations. It's none of these, but also all of these at the same time. It's got that weird chemical mixture of highly varied fixations, the sort of thing that you would expect of a maximalist novel, but there's still a direction to the whole thing. A review of it on the website Romanian Literature Now referred to it as a backwards buildings Roman. And while a little off kilter in its use of the word backwards, I think that is a clever place to start. Early on in the novel, the narrator, this anti-Mircea, is speaking directly to the reader as he's writing down his thoughts on the page. He provides what I see as a sort of mission statement for the entirety of the work to come. I want to write a report of my anomalies. In my obscure life, lying outside any version of history, placeable perhaps within the taxonomies of a history of literature, things have happened that do not happen. Not in life and not in books. I could write novels about them, but a novel would muddy the facts, make them ambiguous. I could keep them to myself, as I have until now, and ponder them until my head cracks open every night. From where I'm sitting, this passage provides the clearest explanation of how Cartarescu plans to tackle the metaphysical problem of solenoid. The form that serves the content, if you will. Like I said earlier, the inciting incident of the book is the complete revilement of his magnum opus at the time, the failure of the reading of The Fall. What develops out of this occurrence is a character whose only creative outlet are the journals and notebooks he writes in, and he uses this to escape the mundanity of his day-to-day -day existence. As is stated directly to the reader, the book that we're reading is basically just those journals verbatim, packaged together into a single text the manuscript of a failed writer. What you'll find within it is a hallucinogenic combination of daily happenings, the author's preoccupations and anxieties, the content of his dreams, and the bizarre carnivalesque outgrowth of his creative frustrations. When considering this is the work of a person who has sworn off a life of writing, it is in one way a complete abdication of one's creative development, a anti-Bildungsroman. But the same is also true that in his artistic exile, the narrator does come to a sort of creative enlightenment, despite his best efforts to avoid it. So in a way, it is a Bildungsroman, by way of literary asceticism. He just enters via the back door. Hmm. Maybe backwards isn't the wrong word after all. The facts of my life are vague flashes over the banal surface of the most banal of lives. Little fissures, small discrepancies. These unshaped shapes, illusions and insinuations, topographical irregularities are sometimes insignificant by themselves, but taken together they become strange and haunting. They need a new and unusual form in which their story is to be told. Not a novel, not a poem. Because these anomalies are not fiction, or at least not entirely. Not a scientific study, because many of these events are singularities that even the laboratory of my mind cannot reproduce. To reiterate, it's a messy, digressive, maximalist text. 
This is not going to be the type of book that serves the sensibility of every reader. If plot and narrative coherence are your preferred pathways into fiction, this is not going to be the book for you. And that's totally fine. Let me make that clear from the outset. I guarantee you Solenoid is a book that's going to divide its audience. And that's part of what drew me to it in the first place. I've gone on record before to say that contentious novels with polarizing responses are often the ones that I have the strongest reaction to. And this is no exception. And so you should also know going in that Solenoid is hostile to easy takeaways. There's no fortune cookie interpretations to it. As much as I wish there were, it would make making this show so much easier. So let's take stock of its content. Memoir, diary, fabulous wish fulfillment, psychedelic exploration to human consciousness, the list goes on. In considering its genre and classification, I can't help but think back to the preface to William T. Volman's outstanding collection, The Atlas, in which he writes, this is an atlas of the world I think in. This is exactly the modus operandi I see Cartarescu working under. A psychological portrait of a particular time and place. Despite its misanthropic and melancholic bend, I see Solenoid as a means for which the author to nurture his deepest frustrations and anxieties and channel them into a sort of fertilizer for creative inspiration. And this in turn is why I agree with Carterescu in saying that this concept would be underserved by conventional storytelling. To funnel these preoccupations into cut-and-dry fiction would be to dilute their potency. It would deny the content of his thoughts their purity. Again, to call back to that previous quote, these anomalies need a new and unusual form in which their story is to be told. Not a novel, not a poem, because these anomalies are not fiction, or at least not entirely. Not a scientific study, because many of these events are singularities that even the laboratory of my mind cannot reproduce. In the case of my anomalies, I can't even separate dreams from the ancient memories from reality, the fantastic from the magical, the scientific from the paranoid. My hunch is that, in fact, my anomalies come from the part of the mind where these distinctions do not hold, and that this zone of my mind is nothing but another anomaly. This is where surrealism finds its utility. At the risk of sounding a little too middle school book report about it, consider the definition of surrealism. Stay with me. Surrealism. Psychic autonomism in its pure state, by which one proposes to express, verbally, by means of the written word, or in any other manner, the actual functioning of thought. Dictated by the thought, in the absence of any control exercised by reason, exempt from any aesthetic or moral concern. Think about that last sentence in particular, an absence of control. One of the defining features of fiction, both literary and genre fiction, is the use of precision and control to achieve a particular outcome. And whether that outcome be narrative, moral, aesthetic is really the entire prerogative of the author. Far be it for me to pass judgment on their creative decisions. But what Carterescu is aiming for, and in my opinion achieves here, is an unobstructed representation of the content and the functioning of his mind. Remember, surrealism aims to depict the true functioning of human thought. Not for nothing did Andre call this the greatest surrealist novel ever written. A statement which I agree with, by the way. 
While a number of novels, both classic and contemporary, have ventured to capture the essence of thought, uh, Ulysses and Duck's Newburyport come to mind, Solenoid is the first to embody what I've taken to calling the exhumed reality. Not a simple recording of the currents of consciousness, but a loving embrace of the Lovecraftian nature buried in its foundation. Oh yes, we're adding Lovecraft into the mix. Problematic as he may be, I think the existential construction that this author gave rise to is of particular importance to Solenoid. Lovecraftian as a term has been diluted down to just a vague set of associations, mist and tentacles, you know the shtick. But I assure you, that is not what Lovecraftian, and by the same token, cosmic horror, actually means. To experience Lovecraftian cosmic horror is to prostrate yourself in complete subjection before the mass of that which is unknowable or incomprehensible. It's the fear of what the mind cannot comprehend. There is so much in this book that defies rational and diegetic explication. Not least of all, the author's repeated inquiries into the fourth dimension. And I'm going to get into Carterescu's borderline obsessive fixation on the fourth dimension shortly here. But at this point in the discussion, the only thing worth knowing is that the fourth dimension is a Hintonian construct which can't be visualized by the human mind with conventional or at least Euclidean imagery. It's intrinsically incomprehensible. You can understand the intelligible, and this is calm. You can understand the unintelligible, and this is power. You cannot understand the intelligible, and this is terror. You cannot understand the unintelligible, and this is enlightenment. As in the deepest darkness, you can no longer tell if your eyes are open or closed. Sometimes I feel that in the midst of my life's fears and tremors, I do not know which side of my brain I am on. Considering how personal the body of Carterescu's work is, I don't think it's a stretch to say that his platform as a writer of status is integral to his sense of personhood. And thus a reality where that privileged his pride from him is intolerably terrifying. This author has had a long and lauded career of incredible and deserved literary praise. And so in this late stage of the author's development, I think he finally feels accomplished enough to examine this exhumed reality, the terror that he had buried into his mind. A terror which prior to this point couldn't be transacted into words. He didn't have the language available to him yet. I think it's also critical to know that this is an author who cut his teeth on conventional literature. He makes regular and continued references to all his formative reading experiences in the book. And Solenoid is a departure from the strictures of that form. He makes that abundantly clear very early on. Like sex, like drugs, like all the manipulations of our minds that attempt to break out of the skull, literature is a machine for producing first beatitude, then disappointment. After you've read tens of thousands of books, you can't help but ask yourself, while I was doing that, where did my life go? You've gulped down the lives of others, which always lacked a dimension in comparison to the world in which you exist, however amazing their tours of artistic force may be. You have seen colors of others and felt the bitterness and sweetness and potential and exasperation of other consciousnesses to the point that they have eclipsed your own sensations and pushed them into the shadows. If only you could pass into the tactile space of beings other than you, 
but again and again, you are only rolled between the fingertips of literature. Unceasingly, in a thousand voices, it promised you an escape, while it robbed you of even the frozen crust of reality that you once had. Jesus fucking Christ, when I read that, I wanna break down and cry. Because seriously, in the same way that this anti-Mircha uses his manuscript to escape the mundanities of everyday life, I use literature to the same end. I can't speak for you, but I know for certain that I regularly get caught up in the pursuit of some higher creative understanding at the expense of actually living a goddamn life of my own. Robbed of the frozen crust of reality that I once had. It gives me the chills every time I read it. It's torturous to examine the possibility of the what if. This is what I mean when I say that this book is an unearthing of the exhumed reality. Because if that reality wasn't fucking gut-wrenching to imagine it, then you wouldn't have buried it in the first place. Alright, let's get back on track and try to make some sense of the plot, shall we? Despite being a book that is openly and proudly hostile to the conventions of typical plot, Solonai does have a few narrative touch points that I think are worth examining to both readers who are interested in approaching it for the first time and ones who've finished the book and are trying to take stock of what they've just read. The novel opens with an alter ego to the author Mircha Cartarescu, the anti-Mircha I spoke of earlier. This alter ego is an elementary school teacher in Bucharest and by all accounts lives a fairly bleak life, as evidenced by the incredibly memorable opening line, I have lice again. <laughs> as I discussed earlier, the first narrative nexus point occurs when the author recalls his epic career-launching, or in this case career-ending poem, The Fall. The failure of this reading causes him to revoke a life of literature and instead go about his life in a state of spiritual isolation. The second touch point occurs in chapter 8, when the narrator purchases a house in, to put it quite bluntly, the slums of Bucharest, a suburb called Mica Domnoloi, which appears to still exist from my searching. I've linked a pin in Google Street View in the description box below where you can see what this place looks like today. Carterescu describes it as nothing but whores and switchblades, which should give you some indication of the socioeconomic status of this region. The old man he buys this boat-shaped house from, Mr. Mikola, regales the narrator with the story of a physicist named Nicolae Borina, whose life's work amounted to the creation of something called the Borina Solenoid, which is a continuation of the work of Nikola Tesla. At the risk of grinding this literary investigation to a goddamn halt, let me offer you a brief explanation of what a solenoid actually is. To put it simply, it's a type of electromagnetic helical coil designed in the 1800s, and its function is essentially to transmit electrical energy into mechanical work. It does have a theoretical definition as well, and this was brought to my attention by my Twitter friend Nadi. In the field of mathematics, a solenoid is a topological continuum, a indecomposable, one-dimensional structure that exists in three-dimensional space. Think of it as from the same family of Euclidean paradoxes as the Mobius strip or the Klein bottle, the latter of which is actually evoked in the novel directly. And I thought this was worthwhile to include because Carterescu does have a clear fixation with 
in what I would call metaphysical continuums and paradoxes and multidimensional space. A solenoid seems to me the perfect sort of object to attract his fascination. And so this object, the Borina solenoid, becomes narratively relevant when the narrator discovers that there's actually one buried underneath his house in Mica Domnoi. Moreover, there's a number of them positioned all over this rendition of Bucharest. Nikolai Borinia believed in the presence of a worldwide network of magnetic fields with both peaks of high intensity and troughs of energetic absence. This boat-shaped house is at one of those peaks, and so he placed the solenoid there as a means to focalize its energy. And the narrator discovers in his travels all over Bucharest that his encounters with these solenoids offer him access to alternate dimensions of perception. From here, the story focalizes in and out of the narrator's memories as he recalls a number of different events in his life, both real and imagined. As he exhumes his life further and further into this manuscript, he travels all around Bucharest and the surrounding environs. And what you'll encounter as a reader is that every time he encounters one of these solenoids, the narrative shifts into a register that becomes increasingly more psychedelic and abstract. These objects alter his perception, and a world of paradoxes and metaphysical monsters begin to emerge. Over the past six weeks that I've been metabolizing this book, I've shared a number of discussions with other readers, all of us in varying degrees of... can't find a better word here than befuddlement. And one of the remarks that keeps coming up is a question pertaining to the meaning of these solenoids beyond the strictly diegetic. To that point, my friends, I say to you, there is none. The solenoids are basically a MacGuffin. I suspect this little device is just another one of Carterescu's idle fixations, onto which he's grafted a functional use for his narrative. Their purpose in isolation isn't really that important. They only matter insofar as what they can offer the narrator, a portal into altered states of perception. Let me put it in comparative terms for you. I don't particularly like invoking infinite jest, not least of all because it's been vivisected beyond all recognition. And most of that quote-unquote analysis has been trying to extract 100 pounds of meaning out of a 10-pound book, so to speak. But if I think about the socially maladapted, borderline obsessive who would follow along for a literary deep dive of this length, I think I'd be pretty safe in assuming and thinking that you've probably read the thing yourself. If you think about James Incandenza's film in the book, the eponymously titled Infinite Jest, diegetically speaking, it doesn't actually matter what's on the tape. And when we do find out near the end, it's weirdly anticlimactic. What matters is what it does to people. It robs them of all functional agency and renders them a catatonic living corpse. And to that end, a similar concept is applied here to the solenoids. It's not what they are, it's what they do what matters. Earlier, I made passing mention to Carterescu's preoccupation with the fourth dimension, and now I'd like to spend some time devoting some attention to this idea. The concept of dimensional space, both literal and abstracted, is a salient theme that's present through the entirety of Solenoid. I'm of the opinion that if you really want to wrap your mind around this text, you need to take this angle into consideration. Let me call back to Andre's review in which he said, that this is one of the four great novels of the 21st century to explore the fourth dimension. To lay my cards on the table early here, I wholeheartedly agree. So, how does one begin to describe a dimensional construct which is defined by its visual incomprehensibility? Let me unburden myself for a moment and let Carterescu do some of the heavy lifting for me. 
I'm quoting from early in the novel here, chapter six to be precise. As a writer, you make yourself less real with each book you write. You always try to write about your life and you never write about anything but literature. With every page you write, the pressure of the enormous house of literature on top of you grows. It forces your hand to make movements it doesn't want to make. It confines you to the level of the page, even though you could burst through the paper and write perpendicular to its surface. Can you get out of your own cranium by painting a door on the smooth yellow interior of your brow? The despair you feel is that of one who lives in two dimensions and is trapped inside a square in the middle of an infinite piece of paper. How can you escape this terrifying prison? Even if you could cross one side of the square, the paper extends endlessly. But that's not the real reason the side can't be crossed. Rather, the two-dimensional mind cannot conceive of the rising perpendicular to the level of the world between the prison walls. Okay, give me a minute to digest what he's trying to communicate here, because there's a lot packed into that passage. Let's dial into the latter half of that quote a little bit further. The despair you feel is that of one who lives in two dimensions and is trapped inside a square in the middle of an infinite piece of paper. The two-dimensional mind cannot conceive of rising perpendicular to the level of the world between the prison walls. What Carterescu is evoking here is the image of a flat world, the world of the written page, where a legitimate existence could be imagined, but limited to the confines of the Cartesian coordinates X and Y. This is where he telegraphs one of many metaphysical influences, Borges being another one I mentioned before. One of the principal texts I'm sure he's drawing from here is Edwin Abbott's novella, Flatland, A Romance of Many Dimensions. Bear with me for a few minutes while I orient you to this book. I'm of the opinion that it's essential reading for Solenoid. Right from the jump, let me say, this is absolutely worth reading, whether or not you're actually gonna read Solenoid. It's only 80 or 90 pages, and much to my surprise, it's Fucking hilarious, in a dark and metaphysical sort of way. This was written in the 1800s and is basically a treatise on the decadence and social stratification of Victorian culture. I'm not going to delve too deeply into the social implications of this book because that's an episode in and of itself. But let me give you a broad sense of the content. The narrator of Flatland is a square, a being who lives his entire life within the coordinates of X and Y and he becomes preoccupied with the concept of dimensions other than his own. His life becomes complicated when he dreams of a world called Lineland, which exists on one dimension, the X-plane, if you will. And later on, he discovers a three-dimensional world called Spaceland. Late into the story, Square encounters a character called Point, who's both the deity and sole inhabitant of a non-dimensional space called, unsurprisingly, Pointland. There's a critical moment near the end of the book where Sphere, a three-dimensional being, speaks to Square, a two-dimensional being, about Point, a non-dimensional being, in this confluence of multi-dimensional interaction. You see, said my teacher, how little your words have done. So far as the monarch understands them at all, he accepts them as his own, for he cannot conceive of any other except himself and plumes himself upon the variety of its thought as an instance of creative power. Let us leave this god of Pointland to the ignorant fruition of his omnipresence and omniscience. Nothing that you or I can do can rescue him from his self-satisfaction. 
The solipsistic nature of Point's experience, the hearing of all voices and perceiving them as just his own thoughts, is a concept that I see as in direct conversation with the internal rhythms of the narrator of Solenoid. After he's discovered the existence of higher dimensions, Square resigns himself to his 2D existence and returns to what he now calls his imprisonment in the world of Flatland. And what we're reading here is Square's manuscript. It's a message to future generations to understand how much more there is to the world when they, than they realize. Tell me that's not exactly what Solenoid is doing as well. Now, I'm not certain that Carter Rescue has read Flatland, but given the many conceptual and thematic similarities, I am tempted to believe that he has drawn some degree of influence from the text. I did, however, find a review in the Italian newspaper Il Manifesto, a review of Orbitor Volume 2, and it included a quote from the author directly. People in photographs recognize only one half of their body, and this is because they do not know two dimensions, depth and time. Only linear proximity guides them, but everything that comes from an external world body that interferes with them, a look, a drop, a word, would be reinterpreted with the data of that world. Thus, even if something more complex traveled their world, as in Edwin Abbott's Flatland, it would have no way of getting them out of the system that not only cages, but constitutes them. The binary system would not perform in leaps, it would not open to the third, excluded, and included at the same time. The reader. So even if he hasn't read it, he has evoked it directly. Alright, so let's try to bring this back into Solenoid. We are like people drawn inside of a square on a piece of paper. We cannot get out of the black lines. We exhaust ourselves by examining, dozens and hundreds of times, every part of the square, hoping to find a fissure. Until one of us suddenly understands, because he was predestined to understand, that within the plane of the paper, escape is impossible. That is, the exit, simple and open wide, is perpendicular to the paper, in a third dimension that up until that moment was inconceivable. Forgive my incredulity, but I cannot read a quote like this in Nazi shades of Edwin Abbott shining through. What Carterescu is describing here is a literal flat land on a scrap of paper that he feels cognitively confined to. He expresses the idea that this world that he's forced to navigate, his dreary three-dimensional existence teaching maths on the outskirts of Bucharest, is beneath what is necessary for creative and spiritual transcendence. This is exactly what Square experiences when he meets Sphere for the first time, a being who has access to a dimension higher than his own. Anti-Mircha feels robbed of a higher understanding by being forced into a reality after his failure of the reading of the fall. And he uses his manuscript, again, the book we're reading, as a means to explore the dimensions that he's otherwise been denied access to. He views his manuscript as a portal into space that conventional literature normally doesn't venture. I have read thousands of books, but never found one that was a landscape as opposed to a map. Every page of theirs is flat, but life itself is not. Why would I, a three-dimensional creature, take as a guide the two dimensions of an ordinary text? Where will I find the cubical page where reality is modeled? Where the hypercubic book whose covers gather the hundreds of cubes from its pages? Only then, 
through the tunnels of cubes can we escape from the suffocating cell, or at least breathe the air of another world. If I could breathe the clouds and streets and trams, the trees and women, like the pure air of a much denser world. We can see that the narrator's bitterness toward literature is colored by his exclusion from the artistic community. Moreover, he views the many novels that he's read as a facile attempt to escape the world from which they're being read. They are, as he words it, and you'll have to forgive my pronunciation here, a trompe l'oeil, or trick of the eye. This term was coined in the 19th century to describe a painting technique wherein three dimensions were realistically depicted within a two-dimensional space, within the confines of the canvas. One of the most significant works to employ this technique is Jan van Eyck's The Arnolfini Portrait, right here. By chance, do you recognize this painting? Surprise, surprise, we're getting intertextual again. Look, I can't claim any direct influence of the recognitions on Cartarescu directly, most least of all because I can't find any evidence that it's actually been translated into Romanian. But that being said, I can't help but read these two novels being in conversation with one another. William Geddes's The Recognitions is one of the penultimate novels of the late modernist period to wrestle with the concepts of artistic integrity and creative transcendence in the Poemenon. Hang in there. I'm going to circle back to that word a little bit later. Now, I'm not going to get too deeply into the meat on the bone of Gaddis's masterwork. That's an entirely different episode altogether. Suffice it to say, that novel deals with, among many different things, Jan van Eyck's famous portrait, which I mentioned earlier. This painting is significant because it was one of the first images to realistically depict the perception of three-dimensional space within a two-dimensional plane. Again, on a canvas. Now, if you're listening to this rather than watching, go search out an image so you can know what I'm talking about. At the center top third of the frame, you will see a mirror depicted between its two subjects, which reflects the room beyond the perspective of the viewer. Now this may seem dull in 2022 after we've all seen the film Contact, but I assure you in 1434 when this was first painted, this was fucking groundbreaking. This technique, the trompe loyale, was actually the conceptual basis for the mathematizing of space, which in turn became the foundational precursor to virtual environments built in 20th century computing. All right, so what the hell am I getting out with all this? Stick with me here. If you spend any time gazing at a Trump loyal painting, Borel de Castle's Escaping Criticism being another personal favorite of mine, you'll be nagged by the subtle sense of discomfort that something isn't quite right. A more contemporary example would be when you look at digital facial reconstructions or deep fakes. This uncanny valley, if you will, is the cognitive dissonance of the mind being tricked and knowing it's being tricked at the same time. If you stare at something like the Arnolfini portrait or escaping criticism, you'll be perceiving a sense of space and depth where intuitively it shouldn't exist. You're simultaneously immersed in the illusion and confronted by the artifice of it. This is exactly the technique that Cartarescu, or more appropriately, Anti-Mircea, weaponizes in his manuscript. He regularly calls attention to the fact that all we're really doing is reading his diary scrawl, while at the same time he's drawing us into the vortex of his multidimensional exploration.
If you could go inside a Trompe Loyal mural, you wouldn't descend into its fraudulent depths. You would only get smaller as you moved along unseen lines of perspective. You wouldn't move through constantly changing spaces. Rather, they would change their shapes constantly, becoming thinner and thinner as they tried to look deeper and further away. I often thought that the world, along its three dimensions in an equally deceiving trompe loyal for the infinitely more complex eye of the mind, by combining rational analysis and mystical sensibility, speech and song, happiness and depression, the abject and the sublime, will make the amazing rosebud of the fourth dimension open before us with its pearly petals, with its full depth, with its cubic surface, with its hypercubic volume. Diametric opposition and cognitive dissonance are both necessary ingredients for a true exploration of the fourth dimension. Not least of all because the traveler himself harbors a schizoid identity. I'll be digging more into that later. To put it simply, this manuscript, Solenoid, is the narrator's portal into higher dimensions of perception, while at the same time also the prison of his reality. And this isn't the first time that this concept has been toyed with before. Will you stay with me if I get intertextual again? Just once more? It's probably not actually going to be once more. It's probably going to be a lot more. Edwin Albert's novella, Flatland, was in my eyes a direct progenitor of Algernon Blackwood's fantastic short story, A Victim of Higher Space. Again, I can't provide any evidence of direct influence on Carterescu, but the similarities here were just too close not to examine. This story was published in the Occult Review in 1902, which should give you some indication of the literary tradition from which it comes. Broadly speaking, the story follows a man named John Silence who encounters a traveler who has found himself able to enter higher dimensions, and the psychological torment being a victim of higher space has wrought him. Listen to how this multidimensional traveler describes his journey venturing into higher space. It's a spiritual state, a spiritual condition, an inner development, and one that we must recognize as abnormal, since it is beyond the reach of the world at the present stage of evolution. Higher space is a mythical state. This isn't just some quantum aberration of hard mathematical contours. It's a form of spiritual awakening. And if you hold this mystical view of higher space up against what the narrator of Solenoid has to say about it, I think you'll find their perspectives are uncoincidentally convergent. I often thought that the world, along its three dimensions, is an equally deceiving trompe loyal for the infinitely more complex eye of our mind, with its two cerebral hemispheres taking the world in at slightly different angles, such that, by combining rational analysis and mystical sensibility, speech and song, happiness and depression, the abject and the sublime, it will make the amazing rosebud of the fourth dimension open before us with its pearly petals, with its full depth, with its cubic surface, with its hypercubic volume.
neither of these characters take their fourth dimensional perception as just a mathematical anomaly. They view it as a portal to an entirely different perception of reality. And their experience is one of spiritual enlightenment, but also profound loneliness. And this feeds into the dark, melancholic bend to solenoid, which I'll be getting into shortly. John Silence, the narrator of Higher Space that I mentioned before, remarks on this by saying, Though you may lose your life in the process, that is, your life here in the world of three dimensions, you might gain what is infinitely greater. Your suffering, of course, lies in the fact that you alternate between the two worlds and are never wholly in one or the other. You have here and there penetrated, even to the space of more than four dimensions, and have hence experienced the terror you speak of. And it's in reading passages like this that I'm compelled to shy away from genre signifiers like science fiction for both solenoid and a victim of higher space. Wait, 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 wait. Don't leave me now. This isn't some bullshit literary pretension about how literary fiction is somehow superior to genre fiction. I actually have a justification for this. Carterescu subverts the rational and the technological and the utopic concerns of science fiction and instead embodies a more spiritual and creative approach to what higher space can offer him. And while he views the fourth dimension as a sort of escape hatch from the monotony of his life, he's simultaneously mystified and terrified of what he'll find on the other side of that divide. And this terror is exactly why I see such strong shades of H.P. Lovecraft's work written into this text, with or without conscious intention. If you haven't read H.P. Lovecraft and are teetering on the edge of whether or not to try him out, read his short story, The Color Out of Space. That was the piece that turned me into an ardent fan. We'll just have to put his hysterical racism on the back burner for now. All right, so we've strayed pretty far afield at this point, but I want to try and dial this back in. There's another angle to the fourth dimension that I do want to examine, but I'm actually going to save that for the next section here. Let me offer you this in the meantime. As I mentioned earlier, the book we're reading is effectively a day-by-day -day account of a man's anomalies committed to paper, and he's describing the writing process in real time. This is where the fourth dimension and the poemenon begin to converge. Quick orientation point for you, poemenon. It's basically a type of metafiction that deals with the process of creation, oftentimes the writing of the text itself. I've read two books this year that deal with this concept quite generously, both of which are fantastic, by the way. America and the Cult of the Cactus Boots, a diagnostic, and the unauthorized biography of Ezra Maas. In Solenoid, I would argue that the poemononic concept in and of itself is a form of multidimensional commentary. Regularly throughout the text, Carterescu draws attention to the fact that despite all the beauty and the depth of the prose that we're reading, we're still simply playing witness to the unstructured, aphoristic ramblings of a failed writer. And it's in these moments of metafictional awareness that he reverses the direction of the spotlight and shines it on the artifice, and it seems as if we're viewing the process from a higher dimension ourselves. You could even read it literally. The words on the paper are flat, manicured, deeply constructed for our enjoyment. But they are, in fact, a trompe loyal of their own. 
They're a conduit through which we can pass into the text itself, and it shows us that the depth of literature is so much deeper than the appreciable X, Y, and Z. Not buying it? Let me read you that quote from page 79 once more. We are like people drawn inside of a square on a piece of paper. We cannot get out of black lines. We exhaust ourselves by examining, dozens and hundreds of times, every part of the square, hoping to find a fissure. Until one of us suddenly understands, because he is predestined to understand, that within the plane of the paper, escape is impossible. That the exit, simple and wide open, is perpendicular to the paper in a third dimension that up until this moment was inconceivable. Carter Rescue wasn't pulling his punches when he said, it's a vertical book, a book directed at the skies. I don't normally have packages get delivered in the middle of me filming an episode, so I figured, why the hell not? Let's do an unboxing video. People on YouTube like that shit, right? Now, before you lambaste me entirely, I do know what this is, and I do know it's an Amazon packaging. I have a few reasons, which I'll get into in a minute, as to why I feel guilt-free about this. Really hate this soft packaging. Ooh, corners are really busted up on that. Thank you, Amazon. The Lyrics of the Crossing by Michael S. Judge. A few reasons why I've divorced myself from any guilt about where I bought this was that A, wasn't able to find it anywhere other than Amazon and ABE books, which are, for all intents and purposes, the same thing. And two, I've actually been a Patreon supporter to Michael's show for a number of years now, and so, considering I've been financially supporting him for a while, I don't really feel too bad about undercutting him on the bottom line on this book. If you don't know who Judge is, he's an author, former academic, but most importantly, a podcaster. He runs, for my money, one of the single best literary and political shows that I have ever encountered. It's called Death is Just Around the Corner. He is the most formative pension scholar I know available on the internet, and I think his work is just incredible. I highly recommend you subscribe to him on Patreon, and read his books too. They're experimental as all hell. Cool. Solenoid is a picturesque example of a late career novel. In an interview in 2016, Carterescu said that, at this point in his career, I had not written anything interesting in nine years, nothing that would express something to me personally. I felt as if I had reached the end of my career. He worked on this novel during what he refers to as his most bitter years, creatively speaking, a period of profound writer's block. It took him four years to gestate the story and another four to write it. He was only two months away from publication in 2015 when he actually managed to write his ending and, to borrow his words, unlatch it from the common trunk of Orbitor. I think that's an interesting turn of phrase, unlatching it from the common trunk. Solenoid does share a lot of connective tissue with his Prime Trilogy. It's fractaline structure, it's Gnostic narrative thinking, it's uh, concern with the divisible units of the self, and yet, 
in considering all these factors, I was still taken aback by how dark it is, especially in comparison to the celebratory, almost euphoric trilogy that preceded it. I would encourage anyone who plans to read this book to first read Volume 1 of Blinding, as I view Solenoid, at least in some respects, as the inverse of the world depicted here. While not a necessary prerequisite, I do feel like your reading of Solenoid will be heightened by having first read Orbitor. In his interview with De Reactor, Carterescu states that Solenoid is an ethical book, which is very much preoccupied with human destiny and with the distinction between good and evil. While it would be foolish and reductive to make sweeping statements like Solenoid is the evil twin of Orbitor, I do think the darker aspects of human experience are explored with a finer lens in the later book. Let's track back to the earlier work for a moment. In Blinding, one of Carterescu's central characters is actually the city of Bucharest itself, which I talk about at length in my previous review. What resonated with me immediately upon starting Solenoid was the way in which he related to his surroundings relative to his previous work. Take this quote from Blinding, for example. The city was a nocturnal triptych, shining like glass, endless, inexhaustible. Now compare that to the despairing, melancholic view he takes toward his hometown in Solenoid. Bucharest was the saddest city on the face of the earth, and this factory had been designed as a ruin from the start, as a Saturnine witness to time devouring its children, as an illustration of the unforgiving second law of thermodynamics, as a silent, submissive, masochistic bowing of the head in the face of the destruction of all things. Bucharest was born on a drawing board from a philosophical impulse to imagine a city that would most poignantly illustrate human destiny. A city of ruins, decline, illness, debris, and rust. That is, the most appropriate construction for the faces and appearances of its inhabitants. A quiet isolation beyond humanity. His depiction of Bucharest in blinding is luminescent, almost exultant. It's incontrovertible that the author adores his home city. So this tonal contrast came across to me as such an incredibly stark change of emotional register. And the question this inherently presents is, why? I won't speak for you, but I can tell you my relationship to my home cities, both a world apart from one another, is one of competing impulses. Despite my love for these places, there is an undercurrent of distress and frustration toward them at all times. It's not exactly radical to say that every community comes with its challenges. And there's also a political angle, which I'll get to in the next section. What Solenoid offers Carterescu, in my mind, is a means to explore the most misanthropic shades of its own psyche, and also exploring his relationship to the world that surrounds him. This feeds back into that concept of the exhumed reality that I spoke of earlier, a conduit through which to funnel the most profound anxieties and frustrations he has as an artist. Look, my mind operates in networks of comparison, so let me put this in referential terms for you. In thinking about Carterescu's construction of the anti-Mircha, 
I'm immediately reminded of William H. Gass's relationship with his narrator, William Friedrich Kohler, in his outstanding and phenomenally difficult novel, The Tunnel. To those who haven't had a chance to read it yet, the story is essentially revolving around a misanthropic, nihilistic scholar as he catalogs the many regrets of his life and inserts them in between the pages of his career-defining work, Guilt and Innocence in Hitler's Germany. And if you dial out of the text itself and examine the tunnel within the context of Gass's entire career, what you'll come to realize is that Kohler is actually a fictive outgrowth of the darker shades of Gass's psyche. He's a sort of photo-negative of who the author is in reality. All the lines and contours are there, but the shading is inverted. And an additional resonance is compacted into the narrative as Gass makes it abundantly clear to his reader how easily he could have slipped into this alternative mindset, this alternative life. Gass refers to this mindset as the fascism of the heart. And I think there's a degree of this going on in Solenoid as well. Although in saying that, where Kohler evokes, there's a phrase for it, a corrupt state of being, a realm of impotent resentment, Carterescu channels the pain of his rejection into a search for higher meaning instead of just resigning himself to his depths, which is exactly what happens in the tunnel. Alongside the cataloging of these memories, he's also literally digging a tunnel to nowhere underneath himself. Read this book. It's fucked beyond all belief. I love it. But back to Solenoid. But it's also critical to remember that the other side of Carterescu's consciousness isn't just a simple binary approximation of what the inverse would look like. Both sides are a necessary ingredient for the functioning of the whole. There's a symbiosis at play here. This is what my life is like, how it has always seemed. The singular, uniform, and tangible world on one side of the coin, and the secret, private, phantasmagorical world of my mind's dreams on the other side. Neither is complete and true without the other. Only the rotation, only the whirling, only vestibular syndromes, only God's careless finger spins the coin, adds a dimension and makes visible the inscription engraved in our minds. On one side and the other, on day and night, lucidity and dream, man and woman, animal and God, while we remain eternally ignorant because we cannot see both sides at the same time. As I spoke of earlier, I'm of the opinion that Carterescu's identity is inexorably intertwined with his status as a writer. The idea that his life could have so easily not landed at this point is incomprehensibly terrifying. It's that Lovecraftian fear of what could have been, and how his wonders at the spectacle of the world around him could have just as easily been exchanged for a complete rejection of that cosmic beauty. Instead, these were absolute monsters, monsters of the psyche, forms made to suffer eternally in the eternal life of the mind, like regret, like remorse, like embarrassment, like dishonor, like the memory of things that shouldn't have happened and yet burn in your memory like red-hot iron, like horror beyond horror, the greatest horror, the mother of all our fears, the fear of an eternity in which you no longer exist. Now, before I go all out on this perception that solenoid is the inverse of orbitor, let me check myself by way of the novel's translator. 
In my discussions with Sean Cotter, I offered up my take that this was darker than his previous works. He didn't quite agree with me. I'm interested that you say that Solenoid skews darker than Orbitor. There are many dark moments, but I found it on the whole more hospitable, more luminous. To my mind, Solenoid seems to have less to prove than Orbitor, which was written not long after 1989. I sense a maximalist chip on the shoulder of Orbitor, while in Solenoid, we have an author sure of his material and his techniques, taking them further into their web of association and logical consequences. God, he's really got away with words, doesn't he? Look, I only have half a leg to stand on here because I've only read the first volume of Orbitor, but I do take his point in saying that he perceives that Solenoid has less to prove. Orbitor as a trilogy is a totalizing venture in which the author attempts to cram every single one of his creative impulses and fixations into a single holarchic fractal unit. Whether he achieves this is in the eye of the beholder. I won't be able to weigh in until someone translates volume two or three, or I sharpen up my French. But we do know that Cartarescu set out to write Orbitor with the conscious intention of it being his magnum opus. In a 2006 Phantasma event, he stated that, after I finish blinding, I'll have the feeling that I've paid the fare for my journey through this world. And so, upon finishing one's masterwork, I can imagine that an author would feel a sense of a creative vacuum and wonder what to do next. While Orbitor is focused on a number of different concepts, the hallmark of a maximalist novel, one of the central fixations of the text is the relationship between units of opposition and polarity. And this is explored in later volumes with the relationship between two twin brothers, Victor and Mircha, and the interaction between these corporeal embodiments of the fractured schizoid self. And while he does take this idea to a satisfying conclusion in Orbitor, I don't think he drew as much blood from that particular stone as he might have liked. As I spoke about earlier, the bifurcation of reality and identity are the narrative mechanisms that are constantly churning under the hood of Solenoid. We have a failed artist on one side and a celebrated writer on the other. Dissociated, segregated identities, yes, but, and this is critical, the membrane between these realities is porous. I'm not even sure that membrane or the other side is the right imagery for this particular dichotomy. I think Cartarescu's evocation of the spinning coin is probably the clearest image for this particular disconnect. I have unkind thoughts about the other one. The author of novels, books of poetry, essays, Lord knows what else who peeled away from me in that distant autumn, in the workshop of the moon, my conjoined twins separated from me in an invasive operation, a traumatic mutilation. I see him, I know him, I sense him on the other side of the coin. I hear him through the cold metal pellets stamped heads on one side and tails on the other. Keeping this at front of mind, let me return to the principal plot device, the Borinia solenoid. I may have given the impression that these objects are of little diegetic consequence beyond their simple functioning. 
And while partly true, that's not the entire story here. Not for nothing is this book titled Solenoid. Remember, these devices pop up all over Bucharest with increasing frequency throughout the novel. These access points to the fourth dimension could almost be viewed as a sort of turnstile between both realities, a flip of the coin to borrow his image. So as Anti-Mircha begins to weave himself in and out of both realities, those flips of the coin become more frequent, and then both realities begin to blend together and a composite reality begins to emerge, a resolution to both halves of the schizoid self. At once you see, and suddenly you feel. A fragment of your parallel life becomes palpable, concrete, like any other object in your world. To put this all into not so many words, let me offer it to you like this. In this thought experiment, the author exiles himself to the other side of a creative chasm from which he is forced to navigate his way back. I raised my suspicions earlier that Carterescu has a difficult relationship with his home city of Bucharest, and there's an angle to this which I haven't examined yet, the political conditions under which he was raised. Now, I'm well aware that writers who hail from what we may have used to term Eastern Bloc countries don't particularly like having their work viewed exclusively through this lens, and uh, with good reason, I might add, to reduce a work as complex as something like Solenoid down to simply its political valence is to do it a massive disservice, given all the complexities at play. However, I don't think Carterescu is immune to a political reading. And here's why. We're in here. Ah, hello. Maybe the world can be described fold over fold, like the statues at Tanagra. Maybe the theory of catastrophes. Maybe Cantor Arepo. But I, curled up like a mouse inside your splendor, a crystal palace for the people, mouth gaping like a nimrod. Did you catch that last line? A crystal palace for the people. You do not evoke the concept of the crystal palace as a Soviet-era writer without at least having a cursory awareness that, in doing so, you will add a political charge to your text. On the off chance you're not already familiar, let me orient you with the term. The Crystal Palace is a hugely important symbol in Soviet-era literature, particularly Russian literature. In a nutshell, it was used as a signifier of utopic progress. It was popularized by Chernyshevsky and rallied against by Dostoevsky. If you want an exhaustive survey of the concept as it pertains to Soviet literary theory, go check out Ekaterina Turta's thesis. Gonna have to pull up the title here. Socialist Paradise or Tower of Social Surveillance. I've linked it in the description box below. Dostoevsky, one of Carterescu's formative literary precursors, evoked the concept of the Crystal Palace as a means to criticize any attempt to build a society which was hierarchically structured based on intellect and reason alone. For the purposes of this discussion, you really only need to know the broader contours of it. The image was first deployed in earnest and then later in criticism of socialist utopic ideals. And being an avid disciple of Dostoevsky, one can imagine what side of this divide Carterescu lands on. He telegraphs it fairly late into the book when he evokes the Crystal Palace for a second time. In their footsteps, 
Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, and Dostoevsky dug deeper, against the grain of the inept progressivism of their age, to unveil the abyss of the mind, unsoundable like karst complexes. The shame, embarrassment, hopelessness, animal fear, hate, cupidity, and evil that lie within us. The perverted will that deforms the crystal palace of thought. Now there's a lot of philosophical legwork being done here, so let me tackle this passage from one particular angle. The conflict between rationality and willful free-thinking. I want to excise a line from Tertius' thesis on the Crystal Palace as it pertains to socialist thought. And I want to use this passage as a sort of springboard as I extend further into the deserts of digression. And yes, I am aware that in this next section I'm going to be straying pretty far from the text proper. But in doing so, I hope you'll start to see the network of thematic interconnections begin to take shape. Because this isn't just a disparate array of idle fixations. Carterescu's schema is a carefully constructed holarchy. Here's that line I was talking about. Socialists maintain that man is neither willful nor capricious, because all his deeds comply with the laws of nature. For that reason, they are certain that after science re-educates man, he will desire only the rational, and the crystal palace will be constructed. Now I can't speak for the author directly, but I am fairly confident in saying that Cartagrescu thinks this is a load of shit. And the only way to back up that claim is to descend further into the fourth dimension from which we just came. Hang in there. Antimirch's fixation with the fourth dimension can be traced back to his discovery of Charles Hinton, a man who plays a significant narrative role in the book. There's a great piece in him I've linked in the description box below. It's worth reading. Hinton was an early hyperspace philosopher and is probably best known for being the first person to give a name to the hypercube, the Tesseract. You may also recognize his name from the fantastic Borges short story, Talon, Ukbar, and Orbis Tertius, which you'll find in the Collected Fictions edition. In order to help him visualize the fourth dimension, Hinton constructed a series of colored cubes, which would later be known as Hinton cubes, which the viewer could arrange and assemble and disassemble in such a way that it could help them comprehend multidimensional space. Here's Carterescu remarking on him roughly halfway through Solenoid. The fourth dimension visualization technique involved the simultaneous visualization of all cubes' interior colors such that the mind would enter the great multicolored cube, seeing its hidden depths just as clearly as its surfaces, grasping the whole of it at the same time, exactly as it would be seen by an inhabitant in the fourth dimension. After a monumental and exhausting practice, the mental barriers suddenly fell, and, in an amazing miracle, the tesseract appeared in the middle of the brain, like a portal to a higher world of an inexpressible grandeur. The viewpoint of a higher dimension rivals the strictures of three-dimensional thought so profoundly that anyone who becomes privy to this technique would be enamored with it to the point of madness. Some might even call them a victim of higher space. That's right, Charles Hinton also acted as the conceptual inspiration behind two of the most famous works of fourth-dimensional fiction. You guessed it, Flatland and A Victim of Higher Space. And his work of trying to understand the fourth dimension was both a vocation of profound mathematical genius, but also a source of significant psychological torture, at least as it's envisioned by Carterescu. In this depiction, Hinton's cubes drive both himself 
and everyone else who uses them to the edge of insanity. The sale of Hinton's kit was soon halted because psychiatric hospitals were filling up with more and more adepts of the colored cubes. There were dozens, perhaps hundreds of cases of women and men discovered in their rooms with a lap full of cubes, with an unfinished great cube on the table, which they stared at vacantly, without seeing it, within a cataleptic state from which they never returned. Others reach ecstasy in the bathtub, the front lawn, at dinner, or while reading the newspaper, or even while sleeping, because like the continual prayers of the hesychasts, manipulation of the cubes and visualization of their interior faces became a continuous, autonomic activity in the minds of these searchers for the absolute. The cubes appeared in front of their eyes at every moment, whatever they were doing, and their agitated manipulation continued within their dreams. Those to whom, after months or years of work with the cubes, the Tesseract appeared, might become inhabitants of the world above. But here, in our world, nothing remained of them but a prostrated carcass, exiled to a white-walled sanitarium. Okay, so let's dial out a minute and examine all of these texts referentially. Every single one of these characters who encounter the fourth dimension share the same outcome. The Traveler in a Victim of Higher Space, Square in Flatland, Anti-Mircha in Solenoid, and even Hinton in real life, all have their understanding of reality shattered when presented with higher dimensional perception. So much so that to return to a regular life would be akin to being imprisoned. Or is it? We'll get back to that. So what does all this fourth dimensional chatter have to do with a socialist reading of Solenoid? Let me loop back in the concept of the Crystal Palace as Dostoevsky presents it in Notes from the Underground. The underground man polemicizes at his imaginary reader who, in his eyes, has an earnest belief in the Crystal Palace, convinced that all human behavior is dictated by nature and reason and rationality. By this token, anyone enlightened by scientific progress and amenable to reason would inherently become a functioning member of society. And to take it even further, if everyone shared in these values, the golden age of humanity could begin and a crystal palace, as it was imagined, would be constructed. But here's the thing. I've offered you four characters who have been presented with, one could argue, the pinnacle of scientific reasoning, the fourth dimension, that has been calculated with mathematical exactitude, to borrow the underground man's words. And how do they respond to that evidence? You tell me. How amazed I was when I was told about the chaos that the amoral young genius produced in this family, unraveling its logico-mathematic geometry, exploding its Victorian principles, and infusing their thoughts with the telescopic insanity of the fourth dimension. Worlds within worlds, in the depths and heights arranged in an asymptotic spiral of grandeur that the poor ganglion imprisoned in our skulls cannot comprehend. How can you not think that Hinton is a sign, a model trajectory, a map for your great escape plan? I don't know how you could read that and come to the conclusion that adherence to rationality and reason are the only ingredients necessary for socialist devotion. As Cartarescu presents it, this form of enlightenment would inherently cause a person to retreat from the rigors of society and search for an entirely new form of self-actualization. This type of enlightenment explodes socially accepted principles and causes the individual to search for a form of escape. It's either that, or 
accept the burden of your higher understanding and resign yourself to societal imprisonment. Become a victim of higher space. To add to that, let's think about the formal technique that Carterescu employs in this study. Surrealism. Let me call back to that definition I read to you earlier. Surrealism is, by default, dictated by thought in the absence of any control exercised by reason. You can't get there from here. Reason and rationality are not the avenues to enlightenment. There's an intrinsic psychological torment that must come with this non-conforming perspective on life and society, especially in an environment so rigorously opposed to dissident thinking. Think about the setting of the novel, 1960s Romania. These events occur when the country is still a one-party socialist state under Marxist-Leninist rule. And the socialist body politic is an incredibly dogmatic power structure, which in thinking about it really isn't saying much because all power structures are inherently dogmatic, aren't they? You know, to more or less outspoken effect. But socialism was the default political condition that Carterescu was exposed to in his formative years of artistic maturity. And so I'm using it as a sort of ideological reference point when examining the text as a whole. Now, I don't need to offer a political takedown of socialism, as people a lot smarter than me have done so already. If you want a novelist who takes this idea to its furthest extreme, I highly recommend you check out Vladimir Sorokin. Instead, I want to focus on the conceptual connection between socialist literary protest and the fourth dimension. And it relates back to my use of the word dogmatism. Dogmatic or doctrinarian thinking is above all else defined by the expressor's unwillingness to visualize a perspective that runs counterintuitive to their own. And I think that part of the reason that Carterescu is so drawn to Charles Hinton is that his view of the fourth dimension isn't simply one of mathematical affinity. There's also a moral calculus that underpins his research. Here's a line from Anne DeWitt's book on moral authority as it pertains to science. Hinton argues that gaining an intuitive perception of higher space required that we rid ourselves of the ideas of right and left and up and down, that adheres our perception as observers in a three-dimensional world. Hinton calls the process casting out the self and equates it with the process of sympathizing with another person and implies the two processes are mutually reinforcing. The fourth dimension isn't just a means for the narrator to escape the boundaries of his corporeal world. It also allows him to experience a system of thought and perception that is different from his own. And Carterescu telegraphs this maverick thinking early on by expressing his attraction to the novel The Gadfly by Ethel Voynich. Now, I personally haven't read the book, so if you want a more informed take, talk to Ben from Beyond the Zero. But as I understand it, the novel is situated during the Italian Risorgimento, or state unification, and revolves around the experiences of a renounced Catholic priest turned anti-authoritarian revolutionary. So having been raised in an environment of communist stricture and Kafkaesque autocracy, Antimirtra becomes immediately enamored with this novel and its deeply humanist perspective on life, art, and society in general. And it bears repeating, pre-90s Romania was no joke. By all accounts, it was at least in part, a bleak industrial wasteland. And this is part of why I think that Carterescu has a difficult relationship with his home city. Because despite being the blueprint for his dreamy surrealist world, Bucharest's lineage is one of poverty, 
political repression and social immobility. Again, this is further fuel for those competing impulses, the uh, schizoid identity I talked about earlier. But don't take my word for it. You can listen to the author yourself. This is from a 2005 interview with the Romanian newspaper Formula AS. Now, I will note that the translation here is a little bit dicey, so just bear with me as I read this verbatim. It is a city extremely ugly and overall criminally not looked after by its councillors. In 15 years, there was no renovation of the few rests of the historic part of the city that still stands. And we'll never get rid of the horrible dormitories area, the communist blocks. Nothing can be done there. The Bucharest of my writings is a total imaginary one, a mixture of true dreams and fake memories. For over 10 years, I've patiently reconstructed from such fragments with strange and unverifiable origin, a city identifiable with a book and a brain. My blinding. My Bucharest. This is, to my mind, one of Cartarescu's most formidable gifts as a novelist. He doesn't feed you an ideological standpoint explicitly. He nests his worldview in a fractaline assemblage of poetic and artistic and literary concerns and images. And don't mistake that for some sort of NLP dog whistle. I don't believe for a second that he set out to write a politically forward text and then just buried it under a shapeless mound of noise and misdirection. I just think the recusant element is a natural byproduct of a person who is raised under oppressive conditions. And this applies to both the Mircea in reality and the anti-Mircea in the novel. I think art provided for him, from a very early age, a window into a wholly novel construction of reality. And he has spent his entire career looking for new and innovative ways to break down the arbitrary barriers that were there the moment he arrived on the scene. The fourth dimension, the Iron Curtain, and the Crystal Palace. Again, if you're not buying it, Here's a very roughly translated rendition of the final lines of his earliest major work, The Fall. Masks in azure, and passing, a green wave, tearing apart histories and structures, anonymous eyes, over the arrow of the waters of light, and beyond the ancient semantics of death, and beyond the thighs and births, they tear like dresses with cold flight. I have this nagging feeling that analyzing an author's influence is just a means for critics to spin their tires while they reach for something actually meaningful to say. While I myself am by no means a critic, despite my algorithm-feeding use of the word review in this video's title, I have fallen into this trap before, clogging up airtime with authorial comparisons that really amount to nothing more than conjecture. And I've been thinking to myself what the practical utility of the analysis of influence actually offers those who bother to stick around this far into a video. So if you're still with me here, in the case of Solenoid, I think there is a relevance and a utility to examining a couple of authors in particular whose work feeds directly into this text. I've already talked about Borges, so I'd like to shift my focus to the other author, who looms largely over the entirety of this novel. That's right, we are talking about Franz fucking Kafka. Let's start with a quote from that Day Reactor interview. This is also the dilemma of the main character in Solenoid, a character with no name, who teaches at a high school on the outskirts of Bucharest, and who dreams of becoming a writer. 
And just because he couldn't become a normal and banal writer, he becomes a true writer. A writer similar to Franz Kafka, for example. A writer who doesn't play the game, who writes only for himself. Carterescu and his narrator in Solenoid make it explicitly clear that Kafka is an omnipresence in their shared creative thought. And not just the Kafka you were taught in first year lit classes. The trial, the castle, that stuff, no. He's talking deep cut Kafka. The messy, aphoristic, half-formed text that formed the foundation of the body of his work but also provided the clearest window into the author's mind. Carterescu lays his influence on the table very early into the novel by stating, The book I hold dearest is Franz Kafka's Diaries. I've always been of the opinion that Kafka's best work can be found in his short stories, his letters, his diaries, his aphorisms, rather than his novels. His selected diaries published by Schocken is a pretty seminal, essential text for anyone who wants to study existential literature. I'm trying to toe the line between examining the diaries in relation to Solonoid without falling down too deep down the proverbial rabbit hole of just examining Kafka on his own terms. Because if I haven't already made this abundantly clear, Kafka is, for my money, one of the most goddamn fascinating figures in literary history, bar none. So I'm going to do my best to tighten the referential threads as I go along here. So, why the diaries? I don't keep one myself. I've tried and failed in the past for reasons both directly and indirectly related to my own mental health. I've found, personally, that lending credence to the contents of my anxious mind actually only strengthens the resolve of my doubts. And so, I quite literally burned the one or two notebooks I had to show for my efforts. But this isn't about me, is it? As I understand it, one of Kafka's primary reasons for keeping a diary himself was to stoke the fires of his creativity in the hopes that some form of literary inception might emerge out of pure consistency. And uh, newsflash, he was right. You'll find working drafts of a ton of his canonical texts in the diaries. Uh, in the Penal Colony, America, The Judgment, those are just the ones I have off the top of my head. And a lot of the content of those diaries can actually be drawn directly from Kafka's dreams, as he describes in enumerate entries. See, Kafka used his dreams as a sort of blueprint for both his major prose and philosophical work. And I think this is a model that Carterescu drew from in his own creative life. Take this for example. I pulled this from that Day Reactor interview I mentioned earlier. I've been writing a journal since I was 17 years old. I've written down almost all the dreams that I've had during my lifetime. Some of them were absolutely stunning for me. They actually determine some of my books. I use these dreams, which I have really dreamt, as a skeleton for some of my writings. There's a certain implicit, instinctual dream logic that governs the body of Solenoid. And I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest if Carterescu actually conceived this alter antithetical reality in his dreams. Schematically speaking, the book is, as the narrator mentions very early on, a report of his anomalies, a notebook of his thoughts and daily happenings. It's a diary. And there's a linear progression throughout the book with which Antimircha divests himself of his day-to-day -day life and reality 
and descends deeper and deeper into his own mind. This again is intrinsically Kafkaesque in its logos. What will be my fate as a writer is very simple. My talent for portraying my dreamlike inner life has thrust all other matters into the background. My life has dwindled dreadfully, nor will it cease to dwindle. Nothing else will satisfy me. Now, irrespective of the conceptual equivalencies between the two books, there is a reason as to why I'm bringing this up in such a level of detail. Kafka presides over the world of Solenoid as a sort of guardian angel or creative mentor to Antimircha. And there are two instances of leitmotivic recurrence that appear in Solenoid which I want to hone in on, both of which relate to Kafka directly. The first is a passage, and the second is a question. The master of dreams, the great Issachar, sat in front of the mirror, his spine against its surface, his head hanging far back, sunk deep into the mirror. Then Hermana appeared, master of the twilight, and she melted into Issachar's chest until she completely disappeared. Alright, so this line is directly drawn from Kafka's diaries. I went searching through my Shokan edition that spans from 1910 to 24, and I couldn't find evidence of it anywhere. With an assist from my Instagram friend Bifercat, I found out this sequence never actually made it into the English edition of the text, but it did find its way into the Chinese translation in the Notes and Fragments section. Now, as I understand it, we will be getting a new and unabridged edition, which is about twice the length of this one here, coming out in January from PRH, so with any luck, it will be included in that version. Now, I'm going to need a few minutes of elliptical explanation to get to the point here, but I do promise you there is a point here. Stay with me. Issachar is a name derived from rabbinical literary myth. There are a few interpretations of it, but the one that I personally subscribe to is its etymological origin, Yeshakar meaning there is a reward. Keep it in mind. Issachar was believed to be one of the founders of the 12 tribes of Israel, which were, among many different things, nomads. They were searchers. And given that Kafka was raised Jewish, I don't think it's stretching too far out on a limb to suggest that he had at least a passing understanding of rabbinical mythology. And given Carterescu's fascination with lineage, ancestry, and mythology, evidenced by both blinding and solenoid, I can see why he would be so attracted to this passage. I also think the integrative element, the binding of Hermana and Issachar's bodies, is of particular narrative relevance to how solenoid ends. Oh yes, we are getting into the ending here, so spoiler alert for people who are averse to that sort of thing. But before we get to that, I will need to backtrack and touch on that question I mentioned earlier. Midway through the text, the narrator's lover Irina poses a question to him which recurs rhythmically throughout the text. If you were in a burning building and had the opportunity to save either a priceless work of art or a child, which one would you choose? For someone whose salient interpersonal characteristic is social alienation, it surprises Irina to hear that the narrator would choose the child every single time. And he answers this question with confidence at first, but I don't think he entirely understands why he feels that way. The answer just comes to him implicitly. What I am writing here, evening after evening, in my house in the center of my city, 
of my universe, of my world, is an anti-book, the forever obscure work of an anti-author. I don't lie to anyone, painting doors that will never open on the walls of this Piranesian world. The narrator has spent the better part of 650 pages pouring himself into a multi-dimensional literary labyrinth from which he needs to escape. And one of the central ironies of that quest, that search, is that escape from this world of dreams and anomalies that he's created for himself would mean imprisonment in the bleak, industrial, post-communist world. A world from which he feels abandoned and isolated. Again, this is a character who feels fundamentally alone, despite the presence of a lover. His life is complicated when Irina, the aforementioned lover, becomes pregnant and gives birth to a child. And the birth of this child ushers in a shift in the behavior of the solenoids around the city. I hope you haven't forgotten about those. At the climax of the book, the solenoid at the very center of Bucharest, underneath the forensic museum, becomes unstable and the ground beneath the city begins to open up. A chasm forms in front of Antimircha, Irina, and his daughter, and he's forced to make a choice. Does he save his manuscript, the culmination of years of intense, isolating work, or does he save his daughter? I'm sure you can imagine what choice he makes. My manuscript, the humble notebooks, swollen with the weight of ink, with circular coffee stains, where I had written for years in the effort to understand my anomalies, my mind, and my life. I broke into sobs and dampened the last page with tears, a fitting addition of salt to the sacrifice before the altar. Irina, pale as death, was now shoulder to shoulder with me. At the same moment, we held them both over the fire, the girl and the manuscript. One by one, I let the notebooks fall into the flames, while the woman I loved pulled our child back to her chest. I would stay, forever, the prisoner of this valley. I knew now that I could not have left alone, that I was bound in brotherhood and in love to all of my kind. Only as my manuscript disappeared into the flames did I begin to feel that I truly had a life. I've spent the better part of two hours here casting an extremely wide net of literary interconnections that all converge at Solenoid. What I'm really trying to get at with all the authorial references here is the totalizing nature of this book. Fuentes did it with Terra Nostra, Joyce did it with Finnegan's Wake, and now Cartarescu has done it with Solenoid. A book that exerts a gravitational pull on all the text that surrounds it and compress it into a single unit of energy and with it creates something new entirely. And the beautiful metatextual irony of it is that in absorbing the work of his forebears, Carterescu is actually intent on destabilizing, deconstructing, and destroying the myth of literature. He needs these source texts as fuel for the flames because that's exactly what he does with them. He fucking burns them. Because it's not about telling a story. It's about understanding oneself. And if you think about this in relation to Kafka, this is exactly what he intended to do himself. He instructed Max Broad to burn the entirety of his body of work. And thank Christ he didn't, because otherwise we may never have gotten Solenoid. Or... Kafka's work at all.
If I were a writer, I would have remained hidden forever, obscure, half forgotten, down to the most meaningless trace. Because no novel, by definition, can tell the truth, the only thing that matters, the true interior of the writer's life. Since I am not a writer and do not paint false doors on the walls, I am content to write, and this contentment takes the place of glory. When I write here, in this already enormously swollen diary, I feel a cool blue halo surround my skull. I write in the dark, by the imperceptible light of my glory. Only this light feeds the darkness of the world. Only this light does not frighten the hordes arriving from its depths. The narrator is an Issacharian exile, wandering through the deserts of isolation in search for the one thing that his life lacks, a resolution to the competing impulses of his fractured identity. And he finds it at the end of this book, through Arena and his daughter, at the cost of his life's work, his manuscript. Again, we arrive at a moment of contradiction. In divorcing himself from his manuscript, he finally introduces a coherence into his world. The project of this manuscript is a search to understand and establish a sense of identity. And at the risk of sounding like a low-rent palm reader, I truly believe that you cannot open yourself up to the world around you unless you understand and accept yourself. Yes, Shakar, there is a reward. This is the reward he earns when he returns from that search. He abandons that phantasmagorical fourth dimension in favor of imprisonment in the regular world. But in doing so, he finds for the first time in his life, he actually feels at home in that world. This decision, burning the manuscript and saving the child, allows for a resolution of both halves of the schizoid self. Mircha, the author of Solenoid, and anti-Mircha, the writer of the manuscript, which is also solenoid, to coalesce into a single identity. This intrinsic sense of self, achieved through an exploration of dreams, allows for a conduit to form through which genuine human connection becomes possible. Still don't believe me? Read the last goddamn lines of the book. And now, in a few moments, I will set these last pages on fire over the chasm. I will watch the feathers of ash descend in wide spirals toward its unsoundable depth. Then we will leave toward the east. I've spoken with Irina. We know what we will do. We will follow along the edge of the road, beyond the village of Voluntari, and towards Afumati, and we will find the oak grove where we once collected acorns. A ruined chapel is waiting for us there, and as we knew when we first found it, this will be our last home. There, within its rickety, fresco-covered walls, we will grow old together. There, I will push my head deeply into the waters of dream, and arena will melt like the dusk into my chest. We will stay there forever, sheltered from the frightening stars. What a good And so how do we finish this? Solenoid is one of the most profound exhumations of an author's psyche I have ever read. It's a work that ingests the influence of dozens, 
hundreds of iconic works of literature and uses them as the brick and mortar to build a labyrinth from which a human being has no choice but to search for an escape. And it's a deeply dark experience by design. And that darkness is necessary insofar as it reflects the human experience as it is. This is why the book is important, why it matters to me, because I have spent the better part of my life in an ongoing struggle with my own mental health. Before I sought professional help, I spent countless nights laying awake and turning over memories, both real and imagined, in my head and thinking to myself, where would I be if that had gone differently? I get the impulse to travel down that garden path, but that journey leads nowhere. To put it in Borgesian terms, it's just a series of circular ruins. And a crucial lesson that took me years to learn is that asking that question over and over again only separates me further and further from the world that I already have. The only way to divest oneself of their torment is to walk away from it, which is exactly what I have spent my time learning to do. And it's what anti-Mircha, who becomes just Mircha by the end, also does. I wish I could have read this years ago because it would have served me incredibly well in my darkest moments. But in saying that, I am truly ecstatic to have it now. This is, without a doubt, one of the greatest books I have ever read. It is everything that Andre said it would be in that review years ago, and much more. So stop watching my nonsense and get to your nearest bookstore. Run! Don't walk! I promised you superlatives, so I'm gonna cash in on that commitment. This is the greatest surrealist novel ever written. All right, that one was massive. So if you're still watching, I'm honestly impressed. Before I leave for the evening, I wanna mention a couple of things and provide a few thanks as well. Firstly, I do feel compelled to apologize for the long gaps between episodes. Without getting too digressive, I have quite an intensive day job, which has nothing to do with the literature. And so finding time to research, write, record, and edit these episodes has been quite a challenge. However, I want to assure you that my passion for the project has only grown. 
I simply need you as my generous viewers to provide me the time necessary to put together what I hope is an informative and substantive product. That will unfortunately take time, but I've got several in the pipeline which I'm really looking forward to sharing with you. Second, given the length of the material I needed to cover for this episode, this was actually filmed over multiple sessions. So if you picked up on any discordant cuts, insertions, or changes to the lighting, well, now you know why. I tried my best to keep the continuity as clean as possible. I'd like to offer my continued and enthusiastic thanks to Will Evans, Walker Rutter Bowman, and Linda Stack Nelson for providing me an advanced copy of the book. Let the record show that my receipt of this was not contingent on a positive review and Everything I have to say today is entirely the product of my own enthusiasm. There's no conflict of interest here. I'd also like to thank the three of them and the entirety of the team at Deep Vellum. They are, for my money, one of the absolute best independent publishers currently out there. So if you have the opportunity to do so, I highly suggest you buy the book directly from them. Before someone tries to give me shit in the comments section for calling out that people buy the book when I got a free copy, chill out. I paid for my own as well. Thank you to Sean Cotter, who's been very generous with his time in answering my questions about his experience working on the book. Moreover, he's probably the number one person I have to thank for getting to read it at all. If you're watching this, I couldn't have done it without you. Your work is absolutely exquisite. I hope you'll continue to translate Carter Rescue. I'd like to thank Andre from The Untranslated, who obviously turned me onto the book in the first place, but also just want to provide him some recognition for the work that he does in general. His blog is incredible and he's introduced me to so many authors I never would have been exposed to otherwise. And moreover, he's been incredibly kind and supportive of my little project here. So Andre, if you're watching, keep doing what you're doing. It's fantastic. Thank you to Christopher Robinson, who once again gave me permission to use his reading music as the backdrop for this episode. He also did the music for my blinding episode, which is worth watching just for the sonic ambience alone. He's doing some incredible work on Bandcamp, which is well worth listening to. I've linked to it below. And my biggest thanks today goes to Nick Brody, who was extremely generous in offering to edit this video. He added some wonderful creative flourishes to the whole thing and just made it, in my opinion, a much more enjoyable experience to watch. He's also just taken a massive workload off my plate in doing so, so mate, it is truly appreciated. Now I know that you're the one editing this, so don't cut this out. If you do, you're fired. Hey, I'm back. Cutting in for uh, one second here. Uh, like a huge dick, I thanked my editor, but I didn't properly credit him. So uh, the person who did the work on this episode was Nick Brody, who can be reached at brody.nick on Instagram. He's looking to build a bit more of a portfolio moving forward, so if you have any interest in getting some editing work done by him, I highly suggest you get in touch. He's been nothing but a pleasure to work with, and I think you'll love the stuff that he does, so definitely get in touch with him. All right, back to the show. You can also follow Mircha Cartarescu, who has delightfully developed a presence on Instagram. I'll put his handle somewhere on screen here. It's been a pleasure watching his life updates, and I get a nice little dopamine hit every time he likes one of my posts. If you want to hear a more detailed discussion about Sean Carter's experience translating Solenoid, and his reading life and his entire career in general, I highly suggest you check out his interview on the Beyond the Zero podcast. 
link below. A mate of mine, Sean, from the fantastic YouTube channel Travel Through Stories, recently did a preview episode of Solenoid, which I'll link to in the corner there. He's the only other person I've seen so far who's actually done some substantive video content on it, so his take is well worth looking at as well. Lastly, this is tangentially related, but given that I'm always dancing around Pynchon, if you have any interest at all at hearing me talk about the author directly, I recently did a guest spot on the Phenomenal Books of Substance podcast where we break down, albeit to quite digressive effect, uh, The Crying of Lot 49. I had a great time re-re-re-reading that book uh, and chatting with David over there about it was just a great time. So, um, link below. You getting sick of me saying that yet? All right. That's enough. This has been fucking exhausting. I'm gonna go read some... I'm gonna go read some James Patterson and give my brain a rest. Ciao. Fuck me, Dad. I don't even know what that means. All right. <clears throat> Let's go from halfway through that quote.